All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 395, From Apollo to Artemis and Beyond. I'm John Mulnix. For today's episode, I've got the audio from a talk I gave a few weeks ago that covers a broad swath of American spaceflight history. Unfortunately, I forgot to click record before I started the speech you're about to hear, so you missed my introduction, but if you're listening to the show, you probably already know a bit about me. This presentation was an event I did as a NASA Solar System Ambassador. The Solar System Ambassadors program is a public engagement effort that works with volunteers across the United States. Solar System Ambassadors share NASA's scientific discoveries, information about human missions, and more with local communities. This talk covered space history from the start of the space race up through the end of the Apollo program. After Apollo, I also touched on the Artemis program and some of NASA's robotic missions to the moon. I'll be sharing a PDF of the presentation slides from this talk, so please check the link in the show notes and download that file. That way you can see the pictures that I'm mentioning in the talk. You can also email john at thespaceshot.com to request a copy. One more note, I've got another episode dropping in the next week or so that's going to cover Firefly Aerospace and more. Now, it's time to journey from Apollo to Artemis and beyond. Then I'm recording this for a podcast uh, that I'll be releasing in the next couple days. But yeah, it was really cool to see the Vendex rover. Um, for part of the work I've done for the Cosmosphere, I've also been able to see some really cool uh, transformation for the mission control consoles. So this right here is the actual flight director's console. Um, and about, I think almost two months ago now at this point, um, I recorded a podcast episode at the flight director's console, which was a really neat experience. Um, that, pro uh, that process of the restoration took um, about a year and a half. It started in January of 2018, and then the Cosmosphere just shipped them back to Johnson Space Center about two months ago, I think, at this point, because I was out there right before they shipped them back. I've been pretty lucky to take some very nerdy space vacations <laughs> uh, from the West Coast with SpaceX in Hawthorne, California, all the way to the East Coast with the first launch pads where America sent its first satellites and astronauts into space. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Apollo and Artemis the past, present, and future of lunar exploration. NASA's road to the moon wasn't an easy one. It was actually pretty quick, uh, but before we dive into the Apollo program and Artemis, we're just gonna go um, over a quick history of the space race tonight. And that beeping is the telemetry from Sputnik, which was the first artificial satellite that was launched by the Soviet Union on October 4th, 1957, and it was a big deal. <laughs> um, it really spurred the United States and got the whole space race basically going um, after that launch. 
Early U.S. missions weren't as successful as the Soviets, or so we thought. It ends up uh, now with more current research. The Soviets' early missions weren't as successful as they liked the world to believe. Amazing what propaganda can do. Got a video here real quick. And for some reason, I can't click it on my iPad. So America's first attempt to launch a satellite. A six and a half inch sphere weighing just over three pounds was checked out by scientists and declared ready. A great wave of advanced publicity focused attention at Cape Canaveral, Florida for the launching of Test Vehicle 3, a Project Vanguard. A preliminary to the scheduled launching of a 21 pound satellite in March. What happened is already unhappy history. Another setback for the United States in the race into outer space. Here are official Defense Department films of the launching of the 72-foot missile, a loss of thrust, and fall back to Earth in split seconds. Neither the satellite program nor our missile development is affected in acting Defense Secretary quarrels. It's only an incident in the perfection of the Vanguard satellite system. So that wasn't very fun. <laughs> um, newspapers had headlines that read everything from Flopnik to Kaputnik, <laughs> but uh, thanks to a lot of hard work in American ingenuity and industry, NASA successfully launched, or America successfully launched the first satellite in 1958. Explorer 1 was as big as the picture you see there. Um, so pretty small. Actually, part of that satellite, this little guy right here, was the kick motor that got the rest of the satellite into orbit. Um, Sputnik was about this big wide. Um, the flight backup is actually on display at the Cosmosphere in Kansas. So had the original Sputnik not flown for some reason, the Cosmosphere actually has the flight ready backup that the Soviets would have flown in its set, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it's, it's not too big. <laughs> um, there are some other reasons that America actually did not launch into space first. Um, President Eisenhower wanted to get the concept of overflight, a peaceful overflight, as it were, for satellites, um, basically accepted as an international norm. Um, at the time, we were flying spy planes over Russia, or over the Soviet Union, and those flights were over Russian airspace. With a satellite, you're up in space, you're not technically in the country's airspace, so he wanted the Russians, the Soviets, to go first. Uh, to make it legal, basically, as it were. There's an awesome blog post by a space historian named uh, Roger Longness, and after the talk, if you want the link to that, I'd be more than happy to give it to you, but it goes over the details on why Eisenhower pushed to launch a little bit later. After that, we're moving on to human spaceflight. flight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite things about this picture, if you look at their shoes, um, John Glenn, 
they, they didn't have their actual flight boots ready, so they took combat boots and painted them silver. <laughs> <laughs> so Deke Slayton and John Glenn are the unlucky guys that have the combat boots in this picture. For Project Mercury, there were six crewed missions. Uh, they used the Mercury Redstone and the Mercury Atlas. The Redstones are going to be in the top two left. Uh, those were suborbital flights, so peeking up into space and then coming back down on a ballistic trajectory. So basically, like if you were to take, you know, a bow and arrow, shoot up at an angle, it's going to peak and then come right back down. Uh, this helped NASA develop the basics for spaceflight. At the time, it wasn't even known if humans could eat in outer space. So this testing things like eating, making sure you could swallow, uh, that sort of thing. I've got a video here. So keep in mind, when President Kennedy announced the goal of landing a man on the moon, America had a total of 15 minutes, 28 seconds of human spaceflight experience. And that was from Alan Shepard's first launch. So not even a full half hour. The dramatic achievements in space, which occurred in recent weeks, should have made clear to us all as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is Chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I therefore ask the Congress above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. So a pretty bold <coughs> decision to commit to a moon landing after 15 minutes, 28 seconds of space flight. Basically the thought was that NASA and the Soviets and America and the Soviet Union would be on the same footing for developing boosters that were big enough to get humans to move. So that was why the space task group uh, recommended that NASA pursue something as audacious as a moon landing. Uh, Project Gemini followed Project Mercury. There were 10 missions. 
this basically provided, this is the proving ground for Apollo. So Jiminy helped prove rendezvous and docking maneuvers, extravehicular activities, um, and long duration spaceflight. The Jimmy spacecraft, which is a little tiny, tiny guy right up at the top of the rocket, is basically the, the, the two seats are about the size of my Honda Civic's front two seats. Um, during one of the Jiminy missions, uh, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman spent 14 days inside of that small spacecraft. And at the end of it, the transcripts, they were complaining about where to store certain things. <laughs> uh, Frank Borman even tried to hold out as long as he could uh, to not go to the bathroom in that kind of environment. So that I blame him. This is one of my favorite launch pictures. It's uh, Jimmy 10. It's a multiple exposure. That arm would actually be retracted, uh, but I think it's kind of cool how it shows it swinging back there. And then the famous Rice University speech. Now this is probably something you've seen, but it's one of my favorites, so we're gonna play it here. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. Got to get the crowd going on the hot way. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. That was a pretty toasty day um, at Rice University there. What was that? Oh, I thought somebody asked something. <laughs> um, that speech took place on September 12th, 1962. Um, just a little over a year, and I guess a couple months later, President Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963. So he never got to see America reach the moon. After Jimmy, NASA moved on to Apollo. And this is a really cool image I found online. It's a bunch of NASA pictures, but a Wikimedia user uh, decided to edit them all together, which is pretty cool. Um, showing every Saturn V launch from Apollo 4 to the uncrewed Skylab mission all the way over there on the right. And before we had any successful Apollo launches, there was the Apollo 1 uh, fire. Uh, January 27, 1967, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee died in a test, a plugs-out test, where the spacecraft was basically simulating a countdown. Um, due to a lot of different things, uh, mainly the ox pure oxygen atmosphere and some flammable 
uh, materials that somehow landed in the capsule. Um, there was a spark and all three astronauts perished on the pad. But it didn't deter NASA. In October of 1968, Wally Sherrod, or Don Isley, the one on the far uh, left, uh, Wally Sherrod and Walt Cunningham launched on a Earth orbital mission on a Saturn 1B, which is the rocket that's pictured here. It's the smaller version of a, basically uh, the Saturn family of launch vehicles. The thing it shares in common with the Saturn V is its upper stage, which is the S4B right here. So basically from here to here, this, this uh, part of the rocket is what put the third stage of the Saturn V in orbit. It was the third stage of the Saturn V rocket. But for Earth orbital missions, it provided enough power to get the command service module into space. After Apollo 7, we had Apollo 8. This is the going number sequence. <laughs> um, launched in December of 1968, Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell were the first humans to leave the gravitational confines of Earth and inner orbit around the moon. To do that, they needed a lot more powerful rocket, which was the Saturn V, it stood 363 feet tall, and to this day is the most powerful rocket to have ever successfully flown. Bill Anders put it uh, quite funny in the debrief for the Apollo 8 mission. He definitely uh, had a kick in the pants. The first stage of the Saturn V was capable of producing roughly 7.6 million pounds of thrust. Um, so it was quite a ride. And Apollo 8 gave us one of the most famous pictures in the 20th century, which was Earthrise. Uh, they didn't expect to see this. So basically, as they're orbiting the moon, they start to come around and the command module did what's called like a barbecue roll. So they're constantly rolling the spacecraft to make sure one side didn't overheat, kind of like a rotisserie cooker. <laughs> um, and as they're rolling around, uh, Bill Anders looks out the window and sees that. Uh, there's a scramble. Listening to the audio is quite funny because uh, Frank Borman jokes that uh, you shouldn't take that picture. It's not on the schedule. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, they, they uh, didn't listen to him and took the picture. Uh, which is just awesome. And it's, it's been said by the crew of Apollo 8 that their mission was to go explore the moon, but what they ended up really discovering was Earth. Apollo 9. Uh, Jim McDivitt, Dave Scott, and Rusty Schweikert are pictured there. This was an Earth orbital mission, but it was crucial because it was the first crew test of the lunar module, uh, which is a pretty bizarre looking spacecraft, only designed to operate in the vacuum of space. It was never designed to fly in atmosphere. Um, next slide here. And that leads us to Apollo 10. We have Gene Cernan, John Young, and Tom Stafford there in front of their Saturn V launch vehicle. And this was the dress rehearsal for Apollo 11. And what they did was they took their lunar module Snoopy <laughs> and snooped around the Apollo 11 landing site, coming to within about 50,000 feet of the lunar surface before returning to rendezvous with the Apollo command module named Charlie Brown. And we've got a picture of Snoopy and the astronauts walking out there, which is pretty funny. 
And this is just a more detailed uh, view of the lunar module, um, showing everything from the landing legs to the surface, the sensing probe down there. Um, there's a video I'm going to show you a little bit later, so I want you to keep in mind that surface sensing probe, because that's how the astronauts knew when they were close to the lunar surface. Um, pretty gangly looking spacecraft, but it did the job that they needed it to do. And is it so that they weren't sure about what it might even sink quite a ways down into what it was? Yep, they were uncertain about the composition of the lunar surface. There were some people that thought the astronauts would like sink in. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of unknowns about the moon, and actually, I wouldn't have time in the presentation, but I've got uh, top 10 discoveries of the Apollo missions, a little handout pamphlet back there, so if you want to take that before you go tonight, it goes over a lot of those scientific discoveries. And here we've got the crew, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin. And Buzz and Neil were the first two humans to set foot on the surface of another world. This is one of the coolest pictures ever. It shows Apollo 11 at liftoff next to the American flag. And then if you look closely, there's kind of a vapor cloud right there. Uh, that happens when vehicles start to pass through. It's like the transonics, and when they start to move fast enough, air condenses around them and has that little shock wave there. I forget the exact technical term, uh, but it looks cool. And then, once the astronauts were on their way to the moon, it was time to eventually undock. And this is a picture that Michael Collins captured. It was one of my favorites that I found while researching the 50 days of Apollo 11 posts for the Cosmosphere. And it shows the lunar module upside down to us, and Michael Collins. And uh, he jokingly said in the mission that, quote, I think you've got a fine looking flying machine there, Eagle, despite the fact that you're upside down. <laughs> um, I, one of the books I highly recommend is Carrying the Fire by Michael Collins. His, he's got quite a wit that I don't think everybody appreciates until you actually see interviews with him or read, read his autobiography, which is great. Um, this image and a lot of others were actually captured on a medium format uh, Hasselblad camera, which just provided, and you can't really see it on this uh, screen, but incredible detail. Um, of the lunar surface, of the limb, um, of the command module. This is a uh, video. This next video is going to show us the landing stage. And there's a, let's see, why isn't it? Um, so it's a couple minutes long, but it's worth it. Basically, this goes from the go-no-go no, go for landing to touchdown. And what is crazy is just how close they were being to running out of fuel for the Apollo 11 landing. So I'm going to just play this. I'm not going to talk. There's lots of mission commentary. Um, there's also shows the pitch angle of the lunar module, their altitude, um, any computer alarms that they get. And then there's also commentary up here. It was uh, produced by the people with the Apollo Flight Journal. Um, and it's just an excellent resource um, that's worth reading through if you have a lot of time. 
Okay, everybody, T1, stand by T1. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Tranquility. close. How you You're looking good. Here. So these are some of the panoramas that they took inside the lunar module. Okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. After I'm on, they got to be. I'll get the Black controller is about 45 seconds. The T1 is staying on the state. Okay. That scene plus two looks beautiful. Roger. Very smooth that time. Pretty wild how close they were. But uh, Charlie Duke was the guy that uh, was saying, you've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. And he actually went on the fly in another Apollo mission. So yeah, very, uh, yeah, <laughs> little tense, <laughs> but they did it. Um, this is a picture of Buzz Aldrin, and if you look closely in Buzz's visor, you can see the leg of the limb, and that white figure in the middle is Neil. Funny enough, even though Neil's the first person to walk on the moon, we have very few pictures of him because he was taking most of the pictures. Right. Kind of like a family vacation, I'm sure. Yeah. Some of you know how that goes. This is a picture that Neil took, and in this one, we can actually see his shadow at Tranquility Base, and you can see some of their footprints uh, along the base of the limb there. And then one of my favorites, and we finally get one of Neil, even though it's underexposed, is him in the lunar module after their EVA. Um, you can't really tell on the projector here, but his eyes are just a little, he's got a glimmer to him after that, uh, which I think anybody would after that. In all, um, Neil and Buzz spent two and a half hours on the lunar surface. Um, just to give you an idea of how small their landing site was, how, how close they stayed to the lunar module, this is a picture of the state capitol here in Denver, and... This is one of the craters here, another double crater there. Um, but basically, the lunar module is here, and they stayed, basically didn't go past Lincoln Street, and they didn't even get, in, get inside the capital. So that's how close they stayed to the lunar module. And then I want you to think about, think about how small that site is um, compared to Apollo 17, because I'm going to have a slide that contrasts the two here in just a few minutes. After the two and a half hours of EVA and some rest periods, it was time to come back and rendezvous with Columbia. Um, this shows Eagle at the ascent stage of the lunar module Eagle as it's preparing to dock with Columbia. What's interesting about this picture, Michael Collins, who's been super active on Facebook over the last couple of weeks, which is awesome, um, he posted about how he was the only human not in this picture. So you've got Neil and Buzz in the lunar module, all of us back on Earth. <laughs> Colin's all out by himself. <laughs> After the success of Apollo 11 came Apollo 12 in November of 69. Uh, Pete Conrad, Dick Gordon, and Alan Bean. Uh, Alan Bean went on to paint some really cool pictures um, from his experience on the lunar surface. 
Um, they actually rendezvoused with the Surveyor 3 spacecraft while on the lunar surface and took parts of that robotic lander back to Earth for analysis. Of course, everybody's heard of Apollo 13. Yes. Fred Hayes, Jack Swinger, and Jim Lovell. Um, they made it back safe. It was the successful failure, um, but it was, it was a dicey situation. Uh, the movie Apollo 13 speeds up the events of the explosion quite significantly, um, but there's, there's a mission audio from the actual explosion of that oxygen tank. Um, it's really fun to listen to. It's just gripping, even though it's about three hours of audio condensed into about a 10-minute scene in the movie. It's really fun oh. to listen to. Um, Odyssey is on display at the Cosmosphere. It's hard to see in this picture, uh, but it's really cool. You can go basically right up to the command module, which is Apollo 14 ended up landing where Apollo 13 was supposed to land. Um, Alan Shepard, pictured here, finally got to fly back into space again. He was grounded due to a medical condition, um, but he got it fixed up and was able to fly. What was his um, it was something with his inner ear. Yeah. I forget the exact yeah. thing, but it was messed with, yeah. with his balance, I think. Awesome. And here we've got his golf outing on the moon. You'd have to hit a ball, that'd be pretty funny. Um, Apollo 14 also carried some seeds into space. Um, and these trees have been planted around the country. And these are just two of them pictured here. After that, we move on to Apollo 15. And it was the first time that NASA launched the lunar roving vehicle. Um, astronauts Dave Scott, Al Warden, and James Irwin are pictured there. Um, they stayed on the lunar surface a lot longer than previous missions. Apollo 16, this is one of my favorite missions for a reason you'll see here in just a second. Um, you have Ken Mattingly, John Young, and Charlie Duke. Charlie Duke was the Capcom during the Apollo 11 landing, so you heard him earlier. And here's why this mission's fun. John Young had a Lunar Grand Prix of sorts. And you can see him kind of popping a wheelie here with the rover. And then if you look behind it, you can kind of see some, like, rooster tails of lunar dust. So it didn't have a very fast top speed, but 
he put it through its paces nonetheless. He was goosing it. An astronaut after my own heart. Um, then the final mission. Apollo 17 launched in December 1972. Jack Schmidt, Schmidt was the first uh, geologist on the moon, so the first scientist. Um, Gene Cernan and Ron Evans. And that's just the only time that a scientist has walked on the moon, so hopefully that's going to be changing here in the next couple of years. It was also the first night launch of the Saturn V. And the lunar roving vehicle allowed them to explore a huge part of the lunar surface, as you're going to see here in a second. They also brought, brought back 242 pounds of lunar surface materials. Here's how far they went. This is New York. Um, up here you see the Intrepid, which is a museum on an old aircraft carrier, the USS Intrepid. Um, they basically went down to Williamsburg Bridge, basically up into New Jersey at that point. Um, so they covered a lot of ground. When you compare that to Apollo 11, yeah. they were on the deck of the Intrepid, basically. <laughs> <laughs> So they stayed a little bit closer. And here's that slide of the Capitol again, too. So next time you walk at the Capitol, you basically walk to like the steps on the west entrance all the way down to the street. That's about as far as Lil and Buzz went. These are the landing sites from 11 to 17. And then of course, after Apollo, we had the Apollo Applications Program, which gave us some other missions. I wish I had more time to go into Skylab in detail, just because it's a really cool mission and it was the first time that we had long-duration spaceflight. And also, contrary to what you may have heard from a Harvard Business School study, there was no mutiny on Skylab 4. That is a urban legend that will sadly not die. Um, author David Hitt wrote a book with a bunch of the Skylab astronauts, and basically, there's the whole story of what actually happened versus what the Harvard Business School author thought happened. Um, and basically that one paper that's been studied in Harvard Business School studies has propagated a myth of a mutiny that did not happen. After Skylab, we had the Apollo-Soyuz test project. And if you remember way back at the beginning of the presentation, we had Deke Slayton. He was one of the guys that didn't have the fancy boots. He was grounded. Um, I think it was like AFib, so he had a heart condition that grounded him. Um, he was finally able to fly, along with Tom Stafford and Vance Brand, um, and Alexei Leonov and Valerie Kubasev. And that was the last mission on Apollo hardware. All the other Apollo hardware is on display in museums around the country. Um, sadly, there, there wasn't any more missions after that, but Apollo 17 ended on a really high note. And it really set the groundwork for what NASA is going to be doing with the Artemis program in the next decade plus. But before we get to Artemis, we need to talk about the robotic mission, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's imaged the moon in incredible detail, both the, far, the near side and the far side. It launched in 2009, carries six instruments and some really powerful cameras. The goals of this mission are to characterize the lunar surface, to study it, identify hazards for future missions with Artemis, and then also identify resources like water, ice, which are going to be crucial 
to long duration stays on the moon. It's really expensive to launch things into orbit, so if you can use water when you get to a destination instead of having to bring it with you, it saves a lot of weight. And some key discoveries from the LRO, it gets really cold on the surface of the moon. Um, I think it's at the North Pole. Uh, the Hermite Crater reached a neg a negative 414 degrees Fahrenheit, so really cold. Um, along the lunar equator, it can get as hot as 260 degrees during the day, and then as cold as like negative 280 degrees at night. So we think our temperature swings are bad here in Colorado. <laughs> a lot worse on the moon. Um, that presents a lot of challenges for designing habitats and spacecraft that can withstand a 500 plus degree temperature swing from day to night. Um, the lunar days and Earth days are a little bit different, so it's not like a 24 hour swing, but still spacecraft have to be able to withstand a big swing in temperature. Here's a uh, representation of uh, where they think some subsurface ice is, um, near the Shoemaker Crater. LROs also imaged lunar pits, which are really interesting features. Um, this one right here is 100 meters or 107 meters deep. Um, these are key targets for future lunar exploration missions. And that is what brings us to Artemis. Uh, NASA actually just released the logo for Artemis. It's kind of, it's pretty cool, a little retro throwback. It's uh, better than a lot of logos out there. And there's a short little video here, real quick. And it's got Gene Kranz in it, so anything with him makes me a happy camper. 50 years ago, we went to the moon. We called it Apollo. What many people don't know is that Apollo had a twin. She was a woman named Artemis, goddess of the moon. We are returning to the moon. As a new generation of explorers. This time to stay. And to prepare to achieve humanity's next giant leap of sending the first human missions to Mars. We believe our course will redefine what is possible. That we will discover life-saving, earth-changing science. And that the challenges ahead will inspire generations. This is our manifest. For all who wondered if we could return. For all who dreamed of pressing beyond. This is your calling. We go for all of America. We go. We go as the Artemis generation. We go. Very soon, too. So it's a pretty audacious plan. Uh, the Artemis program has a return to the lunar surface as soon as 2024. Um, there's a lot of work to be done still, but it is a deadline um, that it's pretty, we're pretty certain it's going to be met. Um, one of the exciting things about the Artemis program is a mission to the lunar south pole, which is a region that's never been explored before. Um, and then NASA wants to establish a permanent, uh, sustainable human presence on the moon by 2028. They're going to be working with international partners as well as commercial partners to make this happen. 
And one of the components of making that happen is the Orion spacecraft. It can hold up to four astronauts on missions to cislunar and deep space. Uh, it also provides the capability um, with the Orion capsule up top there of uh, being able to return directly to Earth from deep space, which is nice for safety. Orion's going to launch on the Space Launch System, which is pictured here. It uses a lot of shuttle technologies from the solid rocket boosters to the RS-25 main engines down there. Um, once the Block 1 um, is not going to be as powerful as the Saturn V, but by the time NASA's flying the more powerful Block 2 version, um, it will be more powerful than the Saturn V rocket. The other component is the Gateway, which is basically a station that's going to be orbiting the moon. Um, it's going to be assembled much like the International Space Station was assembled. Um, it's going to allow NASA to go directly to the lunar surface from lunar orbit, and then also be able to potentially launch from the Gateway to deep space targets away from the moon or Earth. Speaking of commercial partners, this is a picture of the latest SpaceX uh, Falcon Heavy launch just about two months ago. Um, there was some Department of Defense launch, or satellites on this mission, and then also the Planetary Society's light sail, a solar sail satellite, launched on this rocket. But one of the cool things about what commercial partners are doing, like SpaceX, is they're utilizing reusability. So these are the side boosters of the Falcon 9. They're about, or the Falcon Heavy, they're about 14 stories tall, so pretty big. They don't look the biggest there, but I've seen, I've seen a Falcon 9 in person, and it is a big rocket. They're also developing Starship. Um, this is actually an outdated render at this point. Um, they've moved to like a stainless steel construction instead of carbon fiber, so it looks pretty cool. Uh, but basically, NASA is going to utilize SpaceX, Blue Origin, other commercial companies to launch segments of the Gateway to lunar orbit. As for after Artemis, Mars and beyond, Artemis is that first stepping stone that's going to get NASA back out of low Earth orbit and into lunar space, since lunar space, and then deep space. We've been in low Earth orbit for a while with the International Space Station, but Artemis is going to take us back to the moon and the moon really is a proving ground for the technologies, the procedures, well, you know, developing the life support systems that are needed for a multi-year trip to Mars. One of the other things that's still a mission concept right now, but it's one of my favorite ones, is a mission to Venus. It's called HAVOC, the High Altitude Venus Operational Concept. And it's basically airships that float super high up in Venus's the Venusian atmosphere and study the surface from up high. So it's pretty cool. <clears throat> and really what NASA is doing is building on Apollo's legacy from Artemis at the moon to pushing through to other worlds with robotic missions. Um, the Dragonfly mission that Titan was just announced is basically a little drone that's going to fly around on the surface of Saturn's moon Titan, which is really exciting. Usually we've been limited to rovers that can do, you know, maybe a couple meters per hour, so pretty slow. On Titan, Dragonfly is going to be able to fly around. Um, it'll be nuclear powered with a RTG, so a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which is a mouthful. Um, but basically it won't have to rely on solar panels to fly around the surface of Titan. Mm -hmm. And then of course, humans on Mars. 
And NASA has a lot of information on uh, current lunar exploration, future exploration with Artemis. Um, I can get you these links if you are interested. And also for news, you can check out my podcast. I try to stay up with uh, more news than I have been, but I do focus a lot on history as well. And that's it. call-in number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment. Just call 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing any questions that you may have. As always, links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These reviews help more people find out about the show, and they make sure the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.